there's this idea that the church is hiding something, that, which we would have to say as two apostles who have covered the world and know the history of the church and know the integrity of the first presidency in the Quorum of the Twelve from the beginning of time, there has been no attempt on the part in any way of the church leaders trying to hide anything from anybody. Bill Real, how are you doing? RFM, Bill Real and RFM here, co-host of Mormonism Live. We are back again, my friend. Together Our, again for the first time. Back again for the first time. And it is a whole new experience tonight, folks. RFM, how are you doing? I'm doing great. I'm really excited about tonight's episode. I've been doing a lot of research and hopefully able to encapsulate what it is I want to say in a reasonable amount of time. Yeah, I am excited as well. This is going to be a ton of fun. Somebody just uh, just said, and you're right, Elder Ballard also, liar, liar, pants on fire. There's a lot of that going on in church leadership uh, over the last 200 years. And we're going to be hitting on some of this through the story of Mark Hoffman. For folks who haven't seen it, uh, Netflix put out a special Murder Among the Mormons. Uh, RFM and I have both watched it, as probably all of you. And RFM, tonight is your week. You, uh, you prepared an episode on Mark Hoffman. Why don't you get us started, my friend? I did. This is really why the leaders of the church need to pay more tithing, because they really need the fire insurance. Yeah. <laughs> yes, <laughs> An obscure inside Mormon joke. Yeah. You hopefully got, most people got. You got to have that Holy Ghost, right? Got to yeah. pay tithing. Well, I want to talk about Mark Hoffman tonight, but... I want to do it differently than the Netflix series, but this series now, Murder Among the Mormons, has gotten so much interest, once again, in this episode in church history that I wanted to revisit it. Now, the Netflix series does a great job of painting this as a true crime. It's a great true crime drama. But what I want to focus on is really the reaction and the involvement of the church and its leaders, something that the... Um, the Netflix series really did not focus on because they didn't have the time to do it. It was kind of outside their bailiwick. I lived through this back in the 1980s. And after it was all said and done, uh, 1989 rolled around. I had um, I just graduated from law school and I am I've got a little time on my hands while I'm clerking half time at a local law office. And I take that time to read some books. And one of the books I read is a book about the. Uh, Hoffman forgeries, this whole deal. It may have been Mormon murders. I can't remember which one it was. There were like three of them that came out roughly the same time. And um, I ended up reading it. I have never before read a book so intent on not understanding what was printed in it. I don't know if you've ever had that experience, Bill. A lot of times I'll read a book and it doesn't grab me, right? But this one, I'm trying not to pay attention. So there's something in me that feels I should read it but I don't want to know what it has to say. So it was a very strange experience. So I didn't get that much out of it. It is a complicated scenario and you really have to focus on it if you want to try and figure out what's going on. And sometimes you have to listen to different sources in order to get different views because when you get down to the nitty gritty, sometimes sources vary a little bit on things. Anyway, 
the 30 year anniversary comes up. What was that night? Uh, 2015. So six years ago, the 30th anniversary came up and there were some podcasts on that. I went and got that book again. I had to get a new version because I'd lost the old one. I read it again this time, believe it or not, when I'm reading it in 2015, I'm actually able to get a lot more out of it because I've given myself permission to pay attention to what's in the book. So now this Netflix series comes out. I watch it uh, and I'm really surprised that I know so much of what it is they're talking about. I can remember it. There are a few things that did not uh, register that I did not remember. So I went back and I did some additional research because I wanted to talk on a few things tonight, just about four or five things is all. This is not beginning to end. This is not the chronology of Mark Hoffman. Watch the Netflix series if you want to get it. What this is, is certain pieces of information, big pieces of information that to me were very helpful in understanding the big picture and what was going on. Okay, so before I get to that, today is a very special day, Bill Real, because 79 years ago today, this St. Patty's Day, 79 years ago, my parents got married. Mm, 79 years ago, your parents got married. If that yep. magic event doesn't happen, there's no Radio Free Mormon. You know, that's true, it was 1942, and I don't come along for much later. But yes, if that had not happened, I wouldn't be here today uh, talking about it. Yeah. Anyway, I just want to say that both of my parents have, have long since passed away. And I just want to say that in recognition to them and hope yeah. they're watching um, from somewhere. Anyway, uh, yeah, Mark Hoffman. So the first thing is this, is that a lot of podcasts have been done, a lot of interviews associated with this Netflix series. And one of the questions that came up from somebody somewhere was, was this really that big a deal? back in the 1980s, because you have to live through it to understand it, and I did. It's 1985, I've been a member of the church for seven years, I have served a two-year mission in Japan, I have studied, I have, you know, I am totally invested in the LDS church, I have a burning testimony, I am dyed in the wool, blue and true, okay, as far as being a Mormon goes. And it's May 11th, 1985, and I opened the newspaper in Austin, Texas. It was the Austin American Statesman. And I read an article which has printed in it the text of a letter about treasure digging that had just been released by the LDS Church. And this letter was written, uh, I believe it was by Martin Harris to W.W. Phelps in 1829, I think it was. And I remember reading this letter. Now, do you have a, that letter uh, with you? If not, I can look it up on my outline. Yeah, give me a second. So, um... you go ahead. You look for it, and I'll look for it here. Okay. Yeah, I've got it right, uh, right here. Okay. Let me zoom it in a little bit for the audience. So let me go ahead. I'll, I'll go to the parts that were significant to me. It's really not that long a letter, is it? And I can't read that anyway. But it's one piece of paper, and the main part is that uh, Martin Harris is writing as I, oh, wait, 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 I'm so sorry. I was I was into the salamander letters. See how confusing it can get? No, this is from Joseph Smith to Josiah Stoll. It's 1825. This is the treasure digging letter. It will be important to keep track of these letters, and so I'm glad I'm off to a good start. Confusing I think me. I've got the right one up there. Do you know if I do? Uh, actually, I don't, but I think that that's because I'm looking at my notes right now. Let me check. This should yeah. be the treasure digging letter. Okay. Yeah. Good. I can, nobody can read it anyway. So it's, it's as good as one as the other. I think yeah. it is. Um, 
But this is where Joseph Smith is writing his own handwriting to Josiah Stoll, and he's talking to Josiah Stoll about how to find hidden treasure. And one of the things that's written in here is, you know the treasure must be guarded by some clever spirit. And if such is discovered, so also is the treasure. You yeah. find the spirit, you find the treasure, right? Right. So do this. Take a hazel stick, one yard long, being new cut, and cleave it just in the middle and lay it asunder on the mine so that both inner parts of the stick may look one right against the other. And then it goes on to say that if the treasure is there, the separated sticks will draw and join together again of themselves. Mm. So imagine me, 25-year-old Radio Free Mormon, who has never heard anything about this in my entire life, seven years in the church. I was never taught this by the missionaries. I did. I wasn't teaching this to the people in Japan during my two-year mission either. Right. This is completely blowing me away, and I feel the ground move under my feet. There's a sinking feeling in my stomach because I'm like the proverbial deer in the headlights. What is going on? And I'm not the only person who's feeling this way. I mean, I'm in a student ward at the University of Texas at Austin. I remember having a conversation with a very, very smart, I mean, super smart guy. He was a, a graduate student in math, of all things. His name's Larry. And we're struggling with it. We're at the, the in the lobby, the foyer of the student church building there, the Institute building in Austin. And I remember specifically, we're talking about this. We both have that look on our face, right? Mm -hmm. It didn't just happen to go away. We're struggling. We are struggling as students who are aware of this and trying to make sense of it. And I remember Larry looking at me and saying, trying to dredge up some form of conviction in his voice. Well, there's still chiasmus in the Book of Mormon. Good old, good old, excuse me, good old Alma 36. Yes. Yeah. And, I'm, and I'm going, yeah, there is. And that's good. This is what I'm thinking. You know, I'm going, yeah, yeah. But I'm thinking, yeah, that's, that's great. But this is still, I mean, I'm not sure that one completely offsets the other. Obviously, what he's trying to do is trying to find some rational basis to continue with belief, even when the rug's been pulled out from under his rational basis, right? So this is going on. It's very, very difficult. And it's during this time period, because that's May of 1985. And it's during this time period that Elder Oaks is going to give a talk at CES uh, Symposium in August, I think it was. Yes, August 16th of 1985. This is his talk, Reading Church History. Remember, I've referred, and we've referred to this talk before in prior episodes. This is the one where he's famous for saying that uh, the church has no responsibility for telling both sides of the story. Remember that part? Mm -hmm. This is where he says it's wrong to criticize leaders of the church, even if the criticism is true. This is the one where he upbraids the media for the stories it has written about uh, the letters, right? The Salamander letter, which had been released a few weeks before the treasure digging letter and the treasure digging letter. And so he's taking issue and criticizing the media and saying they're not being fair and wah and persecution complex and all that stuff, right? Well, toward the end, toward the end of this talk, Elder Oaks takes a stab. He's been talking to the apologists at farms and they've worked up an answer to why it is that talking about a salamander in this letter, by the way, we have to talk about the salamander letter too before we get to this, don't we? Talking about a salamander in this other letter 
is all hunky-dory and salamanders are fine and they work just fine in church history and with the dominant narrative, right? Before we get to that, though, we have to get to the salamander letter. So let's talk about that briefly for those who don't know. Now, the treasure digging letter is one letter. The salamander letter is a completely different letter. And it is easy to lose track of the treasure digging letter, but I'm going to call the treasure digging letter from the salamander letter because the salamander letter is so sexy. I mean, nothing sexier than a salamander in a letter. It grabs the attention. It grabs the focus away from the other letter. So usually when people are talking about Mark Hoffman, they immediately start talking about the salamander letter and forget about the treasure digging letter. The treasure digging letter is important for a reason I'll get to here in a second. But back to the salamander letter. Now, the salamander letter, by the way, do you happen to have the text of that one? Uh, I know I've got both letters. Here's the other one. I don't know if if I've got them mixed up or not. I thought I had them labeled right, but I'm not sure. Let's uh, see. No, that one. That one's going to be Joseph Smith. That's signed by Joseph Smith. So that's dear sir. That's the one to Josiah Stoll, 1825. That's the treasure digging letter. That's the treasure digging letter. So the other one I had up is the um, the other one. So give me a second here, and we'll figure this out. Okay. And while you're doing that, I, this is a rather long letter, and I'm just going to read part of it. All right. It's the part that gets the attention. But um, this, once again, is presented as um, Martin Harris writing to W.W. Phelps in 1830, October 23rd, 1830 is the date of the letter. And it talks about how in the fall of the year 1827, this is Martin Harris talking about what's been going on with Joseph Smith and what he's heard from Joseph Smith. Of course, Martin Harris had already been the, the scribe for the 116 pages in 1828, two years before by this point. He's in Mormonism very, very deep. He says, in the fall of the year 1827, I hear Joseph found a gold Bible. I take Joseph aside and he says, it is true. I found it four years ago with my stone, but only just got it, but only just got it, possession of it, but only just got it because of the enchantment, the old spirit. No, I'm sorry. See, there's no punctuation in this letter. It's not just uh, apparently the, the text of the Book of Mormon transcript has no punctuation. This letter has no punctuation either. Um, but I think that if we uh, do it again, it says, uh, I just only just got it because of the enchantment. I think there should be a period there. The old spirit come to me three times in the same dream and says, dig up the gold. But when I, and which of course we would uh, recollect as the first appearance of Moroni back in 1823, uh, correct? Okay. The old spirit comes to me and says, uh, 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 three times in a dream says, dig up the gold. But when I take it up the next morning, the spirit transfigured himself from a white salamander in the bottom of the hole and struck me three times and held the treasure and would not let me have it because I lay it down to cover over the hole when the spirit says, do not lay it down. And then it goes on. And this is right in the middle of the letter that I'm reading from. Of course, this is the thing that got all the attention because where's Moroni? We know he's supposed to be talking about Moroni, but suddenly he's not talking about Moroni. He's talking about a white salamander who transfigures himself from a white salamander, not apparently into an angel, but into an old spirit. So this creates a great deal of controversy. And I believe that I was not aware of the salamander letter first. I think the first thing I remember, because it was so traumatic for me, was reading the treasure digging letter and then the salamander letter. Now we're gonna get into the chronology of this here in a second. But once again, let's go to August 
1985, these documents have just been released shortly before by the LDS Church after they had purchased them and hid them for a long period of time and finally released them because everybody and their dog knew they had them by this point. And there was a great deal of clamor over the subject that they that the church had these documents and they were hiding them. So finally they released them grudgingly. Does that sound like a pattern to you <laughs> at all? Have you heard that before? Yeah, a little bit, a few times. Okay, so here's the point now. Here's the point in his talk where Elder Dallin H. Oaks, next in line to the leadership of the LDS Church, currently on March 17, 2021, when we're recording, this is his explanation and why it is that salamanders are hunky-dory. Do you have that? Yeah, let me, let me pull it up. Another source of difference in the accounts of different witnesses is the different meanings that different persons attach to words. We have a vivid illustration of this in the recent media excitement about the word salamander in a letter Martin Harris is supposed to have sent to W.W. Phelps over 150 years ago. All of the scores of media stories on that subject, all that I have seen, apparently assume that the author of that letter used the word salamander in the modern sense of a tailed amphibian. One wonders why so many writers neglected to reveal to their readers that there is another meaning of salamander, which may even have been the primary meaning in this context in the 1820s. That meaning, which is listed second in my Random House Dictionary of the English Language, is, quote, a mythical being thought to be able to live in fire, end of quote. Modern and ancient literature contain many examples of this usage. For example, see the research notes by farms circulated at this symposium. A being that is able to live in fire is a good approximation of the description Joseph Smith gave of the angel Moroni, a personage in the midst of a light whose countenance was truly like lightning and whose overall appearance was glorious beyond description. As Joseph Smith wrote later, quote, the first sight of this personage was as though the house was filled with consuming fire, end of quote. That's from volume four of the History of the Church, page 536. Since the letter only purports to be Martin Harris's interpretation of what he had heard about Joseph's experience, the use of the words white salamander and old spirit seem understandable and essentially accurate. There you go. There you go. There, it's understandable and essentially accurate that it's talking about a salamander instead of an angel. Now, Bill, I got to ask you this. Okay, I want you to. I, I know you have certain feelings about the church. Okay, at this point in your life, and but I want you to put on your objective hat and pretend that you're sitting on a jury. You're just there to be objective, just to hear the evidence and the argument from the council. And you've heard the argument now from Elder Oaks about why it is that it's no big deal, it's accurate, it's reasonable uh, to use salamander to instead of an angel, especially an, a salamander that transforms itself into an old spirit, by the way, is what the letter said. He stayed away from that. Um, do you think that's a reasonable argument? The other day, you and I were talking about this very thing. And as you and I were talking, I was on my computer typing in uh, myth, salamander, old history. There's actually a Wikipedia page 
on salamanders in mythos. And when you read the Wikipedia page and then you go off and read all of its source material and all the other documents, which, by the way, is what makes us good at what we do. We chase down sources and we chase down data. The fact remains that even when it's talking about um, a spiritual experience happening with this thing in fire, the thing is always still a reptile or a lizard. Now, that's point one. The second point I would make. Technically an amphibian. Go ahead. Yeah. When, when, <laughs> sorry, obviously a four legged tailed creature, lizard, okay. half frog, something, you know. And the other point I want to make too is that when you say it's a, a, a an amphibian in fire, and now you want to say it's a being in glorious personage, you're, you're moving the goalpost and you're doing it in a way that you go, like, oh, like they're kind of alike, but. Really, they're not. They're two very, very different things. They're completely different things. And when he first off says that the primary definition today is of a tailed amphibian, as if the primary definition 150 years ago wasn't a tailed amphibian. Come on. A salamander now was a salamander then. Okay. Right. And even in today's dictionary, if you go to other definitions below a tailed amphibian, which is what everybody uses it as, um, yeah, there's a reference to the myth of the salamander, that it is a being that can dwell in fire. And there's all sorts of writings about this uh, in uh, Middle Ages, etc. probably even going up into Joseph Smith's time, for all I know, even in dictionaries today. So, um, But the idea is not that a salamander can mean any being that dwells in fire. It's still, a, like you said, it's still a salamander. And, and can I also add a couple things? There's a couple listeners asking questions. Somebody says... Wasn't there something about a white doe? I just want to note that Martin Harris, some point in his life, reports seeing Jesus in the form of a deer that's in the woods. That's a white doe. Right. So there is there is some like similarity and kind of like, oh, there's an animal and it's reported to be a spiritual being. But they're two very different stories. The other one is here. Uh, Matt's that's, asked, that's where Rogers and Hammerstein got the lyrics to the song. Doe, a deer, a Jesus deer. Right, right. Just for the, sound of music. Exactly right. They changed those for the movie. Right. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you very much. So Matt here asked, I thought it was a frog that turned into a spirit or angel. That's the whole point we're, we're making is that Mark Hoffman was brilliant at taking a pre-existing idea, twisting it just a little bit, and then and then formulating a whole new document around it. We have uh, Willard Chase uh, in a document reporting that it was a, a, a toad, a, a frog, essentially a toad. And that's where that from. And that's where um, Hoffman gets the idea to create this document, the salamander letter, and put in a white salamander because he's making a real connection to real Mormon history. And that's really the brilliance in what he did. Right. This is why, by the way, historians accepted these things as accurate, not just because they were brilliant in the way they were recreated with the paper and the pen and the ink and the handwriting and all that stuff, but because the subject matter was believable to them. Yeah. This wasn't something that was completely out in left field. Yeah, the salamander makes sense because there's already another document that we know is historical that has a white toad mentioned. Right, and I think it's a toad. I don't know if it's a white toad, but still. Yeah. And I, I think that's an important subject, and I had planned to go into that in more depth tonight, but looking back at what I, it is that I really want to get into, I'm planning on leaving that on the cutting room floor, and if there's enough interest, we can go into that detail, because it is very, very interesting, yeah. and it has shines light on early church history that most 
LDS don't know about. I mean, if I had known about Willard Chase talking about the toad in the hole and all this stuff in 1985, I wouldn't have been so shocked when I read this letter. This is only known to a very, very select uh, intelligentsia historical group within uh, Mormonism, a group that I was not a member of, at least not at that time. And yeah, it's big, it's a lot bigger now than it was then too. Yeah, Hoffman, the brilliance of, among many things was he knew how to add credibility to his documents. Yes, yes. So we've got that so far. Oh, I was going to say also, that argument is so bad by Elder Oaks. I remember hearing him give that argument at the time and I couldn't buy it and I wanted to buy it. I wanted desperately to believe it. And even then, oh gosh, that's that stinks. That is a stinky argument, but that's the best he's got. Mm -hmm. So he's going with it and he's going to say it in a straight face. And so this is the connection with him and farms. I think you mentioned the farms handout that was being passed around. Yeah, they're getting into this. Okay, so salamander, it's a salamander. Well, salamander is no big deal because, hey, it's fine. It's fine. We'll make this link to a being that lives in fire. We'll make the link between fire to the angel Moroni, who doesn't say anything about fire, but there's glory. Hey, it's like uh, six or six degrees from Kevin Bacon, except this time it's six degrees from Moroni. Right. And the salamander, we've got it. We've got it covered. The thing that strikes me in retrospect is that Mormon apologetics is so sophisticated that it can actually justify and make reasonable and perfectly acceptable an absolute forgery. That's Say how good it is. Yeah. Say that again. That uh, that Mormon apologetics is so sophisticated, even at that point in 1985, that it can justify, make sense of, and make completely acceptable an absolute forgery. Yeah, what you're doing is you have an audience who's beginning to hear these inklings about this salamander, and they don't understand how this plays into the narrative they've been taught, the dominant narrative of 1985. And in fact, um, really early, you, you, you learn, and you pointed this out the other day, you learn that you can really take anything that looks like a nail in the coffin against Mormonism, and you can turn it into a plausible apologetic answer. Yes, as long as you, as long as you, um, you know, omit certain things and <laughs> do a little sidestep and, with your shuffle, and that's what he does. And he's he's an expert at it. I look at it and it seems ham fisted to me. Mm -hmm. But you know, if you're not, if you don't already know what's going on, and you're not uh, well versed in the background material and know what it, what he's talking about. Yeah, it can seem plausible and even convincing to people, especially when they want to be convinced. It's one of those situations where you have to know what the real story is in order to understand what it is a person is saying and what they're not saying. Right. Absolutely. So now we get two years later. Okay. All the stuff has happened with Mark Hoffman because it's in October of that year. This was given in August of 1985. It's two months later in October that the bombs go off. Okay. Yeah. And then Mark Hoffman is, uh, he ends up being a suspect, ultimately arrested. If you've seen the show, you know what happens. He finally pleads guilty. And now it comes to August of 1987. It's two years later. And Elder Oaks is going to give another talk. And now he's going to set the record straight. And he's going to defend the honor of the church and of its leaders. And it's a very long talk. By the way, once again, uh, it's hard to forget that the guy who now says he's going to set the record straight in 1987 is the guy who two years before said that the church has no responsibility to tell both sides of the story. Right. So immediately go, okay, all right, go ahead. Tell it, tell us the one half you want us to hear. All right. And that's what he does. And it's very long, by the way, this talk is so important 
that it gets published in the Enzyme magazine. In October of 1987, you'll be able to find it there. Now, it's kind of stuck at the end of the magazine, toward the back, but it's there in all of its glory. So it is a matter of record. And yes, that's what it's called. It's a wonderful title. Recent, I can, I can, I can never remember that title for some reason. <laughs> Recent events involving church history and forged documents by Elder Dallin H. Oaks of the Quorum of the Twelve. Now, the thing I find amazing about this is what it is that he will actually end up admitting to while he's busy seeking to justify uh, his actions and the actions of other church leaders. He's once again trying to blame the media a great deal. Okay, so here's the first thing, all right? The cover-up. The church was involved in a cover-up. And this was part of the problem is, you know, the salamander thing is not going over well. People aren't buying it. Even Radio Free Mormon isn't buying it. And he wants to he wants to believe this story about the salamander. And now everybody knows it's a forgery. The church is breathing a huge, huge sigh of relief. The problem is, is that this creates other problems for the church. Number one is the cover up that they were engaged in of these letters which Elder Oaks will uh, vociferously deny in the course of his talk. But we'll look at the facts behind it, okay? And number two is the fact that the leaders of the church were completely taken in by this guy peddling forgeries. See, that's a problem, and he'll address that as well. Okay, so having said all of that, first thing, treasure digging letter, okay? Treasure digging letter was bought by Gordon B. Hinckley in January of 1983, okay? January of 1983, Gordon B. Hinckley personally bought the treasure digging letter from Mark Hoffman. This is a direct transaction. It's in Gordon B. Hinckley's office in the church office building. They're sitting across a desk from each other and Gordon B. Hinckley writes a check to Mark Hoffman in the amount of $15,000 for the treasure digging letter. That is an expensive piece of paper. And if you want to know the facts on this, okay, here's the deal. Gordon B. Hinckley's no idiot. He's not going to pay $15,000 for a piece of paper based on Mark Hoffman saying that this is authentic. Before he buys it, he says, okay, you get this authenticated and then we'll talk turkey. So Mark Hoffman flies to New York and he sees the preeminent forensic document examiner in the world, whose name I think is Charles Hamilton. It's yeah. in my notes somewhere. But this is the guy who had, who had figured out that the uh, Hitler diaries were forgeries some years earlier. So he made his name. He's the guy. He can detect forgeries. By the way, Hoffman taking this stuff to this guy, those are testicles the size of grapefruits. Yes. Uh, he has a lot of confidence yeah. in his abilities. Yeah. But, you know, the, the other thing is this. He has confidence in his abilities, but he's never really going to be on the hook. Right. Because he always found these somewhere. You yeah. know, he got them from somebody else or he found it in this location or in this Bible or whatever. If they end up being forgeries, well, he found a forgery that someone else forged right. would be the fallback story. Right. A fallback story that he apparently never had to rely on because he fooled everybody and he fools Charles Hamilton. And Charles Hamilton writes a certificate saying this letter is absolutely authentic. It, it's funny because church history repeating itself because a guy going with a, uh, a manuscript or a document of some sort to a smart guy in New York and coming back with a certificate of its, of its authenticity is a story that we're very familiar with. But this is what happens. He comes back. Here's the authentic, authenticity letter to um, uh, Gordon B. Hinckley. And Gordon B. Hinckley says, okay, it's good. Here's a check for $15,000. Gordon B. Hinckley takes the letter 
and then he salts it away. And it's unheard of now for over two years. When I say it's unheard of, I mean that the church refused to release it. They never published it. They never told anybody that they had this letter. It went into the vault, the first presidency vault. So when these guys say they are as transparent as they know how to be, that's what they mean. Mm -hmm. They're not very transparent at all. And that's the best they know how to be. Yeah, this is the letter, by the way. This is the letter that um, um, ends up being leaked, the existence of the contents of it by Mark Hoffman, because this is not the plan. The plan isn't for the church to actually get away with hiding it. The plan is for it to go public. So he leaks this to the media. The media contacts the church. The church denies having bought the letter. This is one of the prevarications that the church gets caught in. But then everybody knows about it. Everybody in these circles knows about it. There are transcripts of the letter being circulated. It's one of these open secrets that the church bought this document, that they've hidden this document, and that everybody is becoming aware of it. So finally, they release the treasure digging letter two years and four months later in May of 1985, like I said before. Now, the salamander letter, the salamander letter is has a different chronology. The salamander letter is bought not in January of 1983, but in January of 1984. So one year later, it's not bought by Gordon B. Hinckley. That was a huge mistake for Gordon B. Hinckley to buy that personally instead of having a front man. So by 1983, they've wised up some. And instead of Gordon B. Hinckley or any church authority buying it, they arranged for Steve Christensen to buy it. Steve Christensen, he's an investment guy, but he's also very into church documents. You know, he ends up being one of these people who was who was killed by Mark Hoffman. But at the time, he knows Mark Hoffman. They both have a similar interest. And they have, the church has um, Steve Christensen buy the salamander letter after authenticating it, right, from Mark Hoffman for $40,000. Steve Christensen pays $40,000 for this salamander letter. And then a couple months later, turns around and gives it to the church, which was the plan, you know, all along, right? Yeah. So now they've got this front man who's doing it. So they have a, a layer of plausible deniability, they being the church leaders. But Mark Hoffman now, he's not going to make the same mistake that he made from his perspective with the treasure digging letter from a year before. No, he's got transcripts and typescripts of the salamander letter and he's moving it out there in his circles and telling people about it to the point where it's such an open secret. Remember, this is in January of 1984, right? To the point that people, including the Tanners, are talking about the salamander letter at the Sunstone Symposium in the summer of 1984. So that's this is what an open secret this is, right? Nevertheless, the church stays mum, keeps that document tightly, tightly in their grasp until it's finally released. They finally, they finally cave and release this one shortly before they release the treasure digging letter. Treasure digging letter, May 1985. Salamander letter, April 1985. Yeah. And I just want to note here really quick, Maxwell's Unearthly just donated 50 bucks. Just want to say thank you to... Uh, to whoever that is, appreciate the donation. Um, and uh, people asked where they could donate. You can do it through the YouTube Super Chat. You can also go to mormonismlive.org and click the donate button. Really simple to donate there. Just FYI, no biggie. We appreciate these donations. There's no criticism of it. But YouTube does keep 30%. If you can and are able, 
um, go to the website and donate there where most of that money goes uh, back to RFM and I. So appreciate it. RFM, I love it. Continue on, my friend. And what website is that again? Because I saw there was another comment earlier about somebody wanted to contribute and didn't yeah, know how. Wanted to donate, didn't know how. You go to Mormonism Live, M-O-R-M-O-N-I-S-M, Mormonism, L-I-V-E dot O-R-G. Click the donate button. It's very uh, kind of self-explained there. You'll see the big box. You'll see the goal we're trying to raise. You can click donate, add some money into the coffers and uh, help us kind of keep these going. Uh, we're going to keep them rolling. I think we're having a ton of fun and they're getting a lot of views on YouTube too. I think most of these are up to about four, four and a half thousand uh, views at this point on YouTube. That is great. Everybody, uh, if you can, please share this uh, show with your friends and yeah. all the different technological ways that you know of that I don't know how. Yeah. If you want, by the way, if you want people to see these, all you have to do on Facebook is just share them to your own page share this video that we're doing this live stream and then folks that you know your family your friends they'll see these things uh, it gets us more views and listens and more uh, publicity for the things that we're talking about and the subjects we're covering but it also i think it helps bridge conversations with your loved ones yeah and everything is appreciated and appreciate all of your support everybody all of you appreciate it uh, yeah amen I'm looking at the time, I'm looking at my outline, I'm figuring what it is that I want to get to right now. But here's the deal, okay? I'm not just saying that this is what happened. The amazing thing is that in his talk in 1987, this man right there on the screen, Dallin Oaks, with that look, yeah, that look, uh, the look like, don't cross me or you will regret it. The look that says, while you sleep, pal. <laughs> yeah. Oh, my gosh. Uh, but he admits to all this stuff in his talk in 1987. If uh, Let me just go to that talk, okay, because I have an outline that has lots of pieces of his talk. Go to the October 1987 in the break. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Well, we will, but not Elder Oaks, at least not for tonight. Not yet. We're not going to give him a break, okay? This is These are his words. This is in the enzyme, okay? This is what Elder Oak says, church leaders, and he actually emphasizes the word there, church leaders made the purchase or received the donation of only three documents from Hoffman or his intermediary, his intermediary, right? Now he's trying to downplay this. It's only three documents that church leaders purchased, right? But those are the only three that make any difference. The others are unimportant documents. There's about 40 of them that they produced on a list, right, for the uh, law enforcement later on. There's about 40 that they said they got from Mark Hoffman. Like 37 of them are meaningless. Three of them are important. And that's a salamander letter and the treasure digging letter, right? Those are two of those three. But he doesn't say that here. He only intimates they got three. Right. But he wants to say only three. Yeah. But that's three. And these are the three important ones. This is what I mean when he's trying to downplay their involvement, but at the same time admitting it. He's really making a hash of things as far as I'm concerned. If I were his attorney, I would have told him to exercise his Fifth Amendment right and not make this talk. But he goes on. Acting for the church, President Gordon B. Hinckley, by the way, acting for the church, President Gordon B. Hinckley purchased the Joseph Smith letter to Josiah Stowell. That's the treasure digging letter from Hoffman. This is what he says. This is in the enzyme. At about that same time, President Hinckley received from him as a gift to the church a draft letter from somebody else, which I don't care about. Third, Hoffman 
sold the Martin Harris W.W. Phelps letter. I don't know why I can't say salamander letter. You know, two years before, before they knew there were forgeries, all he could say was salamander this and how wonderful salamanders are. Now he can't even call it the salamander letter. Third, Hoffman sold the Martin Harris W.W. Phelps letter, a.k.a. salamander letter, to Stephen F. Christensen. Some months later, after Christensen completed his research and authentication, he delivered this letter to President Hinckley as a gift to the church. He says historical department personnel were fully informed about all of these transactions, although he doesn't say when they were informed. So in other words, he's admitting to the key steps here as to exactly what it was that happened and who bought the documents and from whom. By the way, when he says after Christensen completed his research and authentication, yeah, I have to call BS on that. Christensen doesn't lay out $40,000, although I understand. Oh, I just saw last night there was a contract for it. It was like $10,000 every six months until it was paid in full. So he actually didn't pay the full amount up front. There was a contract and a payment plan that was associated with it. I'm not sure how that went. Uh, fortunately, the final payment was due uh, the July before. Steve Christensen was blown up. So he would have had the opportunity at least to pay the full 40,000. So some months later, after Christensen completed his research and authentication, he delivered this letter to President Hinckley as a gift to the church. So they always end up in the custody of the church and then they disappear from view. That's what happens with these documents. That's why there's the allegation that there was a cover-up because there was a cover-up. And that, well, I mean, it's pretty obvious, right? Two years and four months for one of them and a year and four months for the other. Yeah. Absolutely. And the only reason they're released isn't because out of the good heartedness and transparency of the church. It's because they're put under pressure. It's been leaked. Everybody knows they have it. And now they're looking like a bunch of idiots for hiding it because everybody knows they're hiding it. So now they're going to release it since everybody already knows what's in it anyway. Okay. They got nothing to lose by releasing it and only things to lose by continuing to hide it. Okay. Mm -hmm. So that's that. Now, um, I'll tell you something it's else. It's wrong to criticize leaders of the church, even if the criticism is true. I hope this won't be taken as a criticism. Because <laughs> uh, Elder Oaks, even though he's just a member, he's kind of a newish member of the Quorum of the Twelve at the time, is now, yeah, first counselor in the first presidency and next in line. Yep. Next in line to become the president of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. So now we've got this other thing that he mentions, which is, what is it that he says? Oh, this is where he says it. He says, also conveniently omitted from mention in most of the repetitious media recitals of the church's suppression of documents. Geez, that guy needs to learn how to use a comma. Also conveniently omitted from mention in most of the repetitious media recitals of the church's suppression of documents is the fact that the most prominent Hoffman documents used to attack the origins of the church, including Martin Harris's so-called salamander letter. Oh, he does mention salamander letter there. Joseph Smith's treasure hunting letter to Josiah Stoll and the Joseph Smith third blessing. Okay. He says all of these letters were all made public by the church many months before the bombings triggered intense public interest in this subject. First off, many months? Yeah, because it's April and May, right? <laughs> April and May of 1985, they released these, uh, the letters, and the bombings don't happen until October. So, yeah, 
That, I think that's fair. The problem, what's the problem with that, Bill? Can you tell me the problem is with that? Yeah, that reminds me of several months shy of her 15th birthday, right? So there's that. Um, and then there's the idea that, well, maybe they released him a few months before the bombings. And the, but there's reasons they released him when they did. And how much time passed between when they procured these documents and when they released him, that's not part of this conversation at all, is it? He doesn't mention those dates. And so from my point of view, the date of the bombings is not the point of reference that's relevant to the issue of when it was they released these documents. The issue is when it was they purchased them and how long they had them and had them hidden before they released them. And as I said, it's two years and four months for the treasure digging letter and one year and four months for the salamander letter. And we've already gone over the circumstances surrounding their final yeah. release of these. But that, that's just one of the, an example of how it is that he will frame things in order to try and make the church look wonderful, good-willed, transparent, when actually it has nothing to do with the real facts of their perfidy. If, if somebody in a court case used the word many to describe two, how would that, would that, would that fly? Well, let's say April, May, June, July, August, September, October, that's six. Six so, months for the salamander letter and five for the treasure digging letter. Okay, so that, that that is at least somewhat significant. But as you point out, there are other things happening for why those letters were released when they were. There was a great amount of attention coming from critics of the church, the Tanners and others, as that conversation is being uh, strung around in uh, Mormon uh, uh, arenas. Yeah, absolutely there was. So now I want to just talk very briefly, if I've talked enough about those two letters for everybody to understand, because this was very helpful to me when I understood this chronology and what was really going on relative to the, the purchase and then the final release of the letters. I wanted to mention the McClellan Collection, mm. okay? because the McClellan, McClellan Collection is completely separate from these two documents. The McClellan Collection is a purported group of documents from, um, I think it was William McClellan, an early uh, apostle, right, who ends up getting uh, soured on the church around 1837-38 when a lot of people were getting soured on the church and leaving the church. So there's all these documents. So what Mark Hoffman does is he comes to Elder Oaks. By the way, he, he can just walk into his office apparently at this point. I mean, maybe a secretary has to buzz him in, but he's got pretty good access to him and also to Gordon B. Hinckley, by the way. And you can see why the why the brethren would love for Mark to walk straight in and have a conversation um, because they would much rather procure these documents one way or another than have them be sold elsewhere. Absolutely. So here's a story on the McClellan collection, okay? Mark Hoffman goes in there and says, I've got a line on the McClellan collection. This is something that people knew might be existing, okay? He doesn't do these things in a vacuum. He plugs holes of things that people know are out there or could be out there, or a reference this being out there. And he finds these things. He's amazing. He's like Indiana Jones. So he finds this McClellan collection. It's being held by a guy in Texas, okay? So some guy in Texas has the McClellan collection, and Mark Hoffman can get it from this guy for $185,000. Mm. That's what the mythical guy in Texas that's what his selling price is for the um, the McClellan collection, right? Yeah. So here's the deal, okay? Here's the deal. Oak says, no, the church is not going to buy these documents. But the other general authority who's involved is Gordon B. Hinckley, there's um, Dallin H. Oaks, and there's Hugh Pinnock. 
Hugh Pinnock is in the 70. I even remember Hugh Pinnock. I think he was an okay speaker, you know, in general conference. And those are hard to come by. But Hugh Pinnock, uh, he was a guy, he was involved in this as well. And Hugh Pinnock in this meeting says, I got an idea. I happen to be on the board of directors for the first interstate bank of Utah. And what I can do is I can arrange a loan from the bank to Mark Hoffman in the amount of $185,000. So that sounds like a good idea to Elder Oaks. So he authorizes it. Uh, Hugh Pinnock makes the phone calls and that day or the next day, Mark Hoffman shows up at the bank. By the way, there's no credit check. There's no application. There's no history run on uh, his assets or his ability to pay or anything, you know, like you would usually do if you're a bank for $185,000 loan. No, all that goes by the wayside because we've got the director involved who is a general authority in the church. Yeah, I got, I got a question. Loans yeah. generally have to be paid back. I would assume Hugh Pennick isn't going to write a loan that he knows won't be paid back. This is money that Mark is taking as income for these documents. So who would pay the loan back, RFM? If, if I don't know who it is who pays the loan back because there are some things that are obscured even at this point, at least for me. Uh, but, but you have to remember, Mark Hoffman is not being paid $185,000. He's the agent who is being given the $185,000 to pay to the guy in Texas in order to purchase the documents. And then the idea is that Mark Hoffman is then going to give the McClellan collection to the church. Yeah. So that loan either goes unpaid or somebody pays it back. And the most rational, logical conclusion would be the church, right? Or somebody on the church's behalf. Absolutely. Absolutely. Hmm. Mark Hoffman's not going to be paying this back. He's no. not on the hook for it. Oh, that's his income. He wants to make something off doing all this work with finding these documents and then selling them off. Right. Now, once again, it's very easy to get. Um, I get it. He's he's getting them from a third party. I get it. And right. that's, there's, there's the mythical story that the church believes. And then there's the reality of uh, the, the, the trick that Mark Hoffman. Even if, we accept, even if we accept there's this other party in Texas and that person's real, Hoffman isn't going in the whole 185 grand. There's, that doesn't make any sense at all. That money has to be paid back. It's not going to be by the guy in Texas. It's not going to be by Mark Hoffman. And it might be paid by a third party who's doing a favor for the church or the church itself. But at the end of the day, that's still the church. Yes. Yes. Yeah. And, and it's up to anybody to make their own decision, whether this is the church making the loan or whether it's church officials who also happen to be bank officials having the bank make the loan in a way that a bank would never make the loan under ordinary circumstances. To me, it seems all kind of the same thing. It's cloak and dagger, but when yeah. you know what's going on, it's pretty obvious that the church is behind it and it would have happened. It would not have happened without not, the church. Not a subterfuge. Yes, absolutely. So now here's what happened because it gets better because Mark Hoffman's supposed to give this to the church. By the way, uh, I listened to Sandra Tanner, her interview with John DeLynn. She's of the opinion that Mark Hoffman was supposed to hold on to the documents for the church. The reason I think that that may be not correct, even though I, I know she knows the stuff a lot better than I do. All I'm going to say is that, believe it or not, Elder Oaks admits to all of this in his 1987 talk that's published in the Enzyme. And I'll get to that here in a second, okay? But I want to tell you the story so then you can see what it is he's admitting to. And it actually makes a little bit more sense here that if Mark Hoffman is now going to play the role of Steve Christensen and he's going to buy from the guy in Austin, Texas, and then give it to the church, that makes more sense to me with what happens next. 
Yeah, Hoffman's learning how a middleman works, isn't he? Hey, it's good. It's good because he's very good at playing both ends against the middle. We know that. Yeah. So one hundred eighty-five thousand dollars, but he still doesn't have. He doesn't have the documents, and now he's he's representing that he's bought the documents from this guy in Texas. He's in possession of them. Well, the church wants documents, right? That's what the hundred eighty-five thousand dollars was for. Mark doesn't have them, so he's shuffling. He's he's coming up with ideas, and his next idea is to contact uh, Dallin Oaks, and I guess he's got his cell phone number, even though they didn't have cell phones back then, I think. And he's telling Dallin, he said, Dallin, look, here's the problem. I got a problem. My problem is I'm running into financial difficulties. Now, of everything that Mark Hoffman ever said in his life, that may be the only true thing he ever said. <laughs> okay, Because oh. he was really having substantial financial difficulties at the time. But the financial difficulties he's talking about are causing him to not be able to give these documents to the church, now he's going to have to sell them off piecemeal to different investors in order to help, you know, alleviate whatever financial difficulties Mark Hoffman is experiencing personally. Yeah. Well, apparently, uh, Elder Oak's office goes to DEFCON 1 over that because that's the last thing they want. This is the whole reason they're doing this is to get these documents for the church. And I don't know, depending upon what's in them, maybe do what they did with the treasure digging letter and the salamander letter, which is keep them under wraps. Hmm. Maybe. I don't know. 32 first vision account. Uh, yeah. Like that. Hmm. So, um, so, so here's the deal. Now elder Oaks and Hugh Pinnock contact another wealthy Mormon. Apparently that the trees are loaded with these wealthy Mormons who are willing to buy expensive things and then donate them to the church. This guy's name is David Sorensen. Mm. And he has nothing to do with the story up to this point. And this is his only involvement with the story. David Sorensen is currently at the time a mission president in Canada, but he's got bucks. So Oaks and or Pennant contact him, ask him if he will buy the McClellan papers from Mark Hoffman now for $185,000. It's the same price. Mm. And David Sorensen agrees that he'll do it. Of course, he wants to make sure things are authenticated. And so they come up with Steve Christensen to authenticate. And David Sorensen, I don't know if he's president in Salt Lake. I know he has his attorney president in Salt Lake. Okay. And it may be that he's still on his mission, you know, being the president, can't leave mission boundaries. I don't know. But he's got his attorney president in Salt Lake for this to happen with the check signed by David Sorensen or mm. a bank check or whatever it is. Mm. And so the idea is that this McClellan collection is going to be delivered by Mark Hoffman to Steve Christensen for him to authenticate it. At which point the attorney for David Sorensen is going to give the check for $185,000 to Mark Hoffman. And that was, that meeting was supposed to happen on October 15th, 1985. But the problem is it never happened because the problem was, number one, that there were never any McClellan collection documents for Steve Christensen to authenticate. And number two, Steve Christensen was busy getting blown up that morning. Yeah. Yeah. And, and just FYI, just I was just pushing this into the computer while you were talking. David E. Sorensen uh, was called as a general authority, a member of the second quorum of the 70 in June of 92, right? Let's wait a few years. Let's let some time pass. And then let's move this guy as a favor 
into church leadership. So he served there. He was transferred to the first Quorum of the Seventy in April 1995. Um, Sorensen's assignments goes on and on. Um, but there he is. Looks like uh, he passed away, though, in 2014. So there is a Wikipedia page on Sorensen. Okay. Okay. Well, thank you for looking that up. So that's that's David Sorensen. Now, what I want to finish with today, and this may have to be a two-parter, and I apologize, everybody. Hopefully, you're if you're interested enough in this still, I know it's kind of been super saturated with Mark Hoffman stuff. But uh, I'm just trying to focus on things that are really interesting to me. And the other thing that's really interesting to me, by the way, is that night... It's October 15th. It's 1985. That afternoon, who shows up in Elder Oak's office but Mark Hoffman? Mm, the day of the bombing. Yes, where they have a 10-minute meeting. Mm. And I'll talk a little bit about that maybe later. But here's what I want to do at this point to go to, to finish up for tonight. Is I want to just talk about this uh, talk, this 1987 talk by Dallin H. Oaks, where he admits... All the stuff. And when you know what he's talking about, it becomes really clear what it is he's talking about. That's why I went into that detail about what it was that happened. Now, if you go to his his talk, his 1987 talk, once again, it's in the October Enzyme. You can find it there, the one that says um, recent events. Mm -hmm. Okay. So if you go down to, uh, excuse me, I'm sorry, I'm talking about my numbers. My numbers have no reference to anything ex except my numbers. Okay. If you give me a keyword RFM, I'll type it in. I can find it in the in the talk. Oh, okay. So well, you anything that's unique in that in that in the phrase that you want to talk okay. about. Uh, First Interstate Bank. This is under the uh, part where it's called factual clarifications. That's the subheading in his talk. So factual clar clarifications. This is Elder Oaks. Testimony at Hoffman's preliminary hearing quoted the late Stephen F. Christensen as saying that at the request of church officials. Threats were communicated to Hoffman that he would be excommunicated if he did not pay his $185,000 loan from First Interstate Bank. Do you have that up there on the... You, it's sitting on the screen. Okay. Now, here, see Salt Lake Tribune. He admits to this because it's in the context of his going on now to say, no, nobody ever threatened to excommunicate Mark Hoffman for not repaying the $185,000 loan from First Interstate Bank. He says, did President Gordon B. Hinckley, Elder Dallany Jokes, or Hugh, or Hugh W. Pinnock threaten Hoffman with excommunication? No such threats were made. And then he goes on and on about that. Here's the deal. I don't care if they threatened him with excommunication. If I were in their position, I would have threatened him with hellfire if he didn't pay back the $185,000. I would not blame them. But the funny thing is, is that while he's trying to clean the skirts of their their skirts of the blood, right, and get the blame off of them, he's admitting to the salient aspect of the story that there was a $185,000 loan to Mark Hoffman from First Interstate Bank. And we know the background story because that was pieced together by other people who did the research and wrote the books. Again, where, yeah. So the guy in Texas gets paid. Again, we know he doesn't exist, but the guy in Texas gets paid. Hoffman's trying to make money. He's not trying to take out $185,000 loans to hold on to documents that he doesn't want. Somebody in this conversation, somebody has agreed with Hoffman who's going to pay this loan back. What If I had one question, if I could go sit down with Mark in prison where he's at and ask him one thing, I would ask him, who told you who was going to pay back that $185,000 loan? Yeah. And Some, I don't, maybe, maybe nobody told him. Maybe it wasn't something that he was really cared about. Yeah, because he knew it wasn't going to be 
him. Yeah. Mm, 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 mm. So he goes on now. This is once again, Dallin Oaks, once again, trying to get the blame off of them. And instead, he's just heaping it on. He says, did the church seek to obtain the so-called McClellan collection in order to keep it from public scrutiny? Well, that's a good question. His answer is no, with an exclamation point. And now listen to what he goes on and says and see if this sounds familiar with what I just told you about. At the decision-making level, church authorities consistently made clear that the church was not interested in purchasing the so-called McClellan collection or in loaning money for its acquisition by another person. You see what he's doing there? What he's saying is absolutely technically true, but he's given the exact wrong impression. And when you know what really happened, you can see how he's tap dancing through the minefield. Yeah. Mm. Because the church did not loan money for its acquisition. No, that was Hugh Pinnock's bank who did it. <laughs> bank felt about that whole ordeal. And then he goes on. Oh, by the way, do you have this on the screen? I do. In the circumstances that prevailed in June 1985, to have the church involved in the acquisition of the papers of a prominent opponent of the church would simply fuel the then current speculation that the church was seeking to acquire the McClellan collection in order to suppress it. So right there, he tells us the motive for why it was that they were having the $185,000 loan. <laughs> He he basically says, look, we had to do this through the back channels. We had to create a loan. It had to be off the books because we are trying to suppress it. Exactly. <laughs> it's really amazing, so, isn't it? Once you once you understand all the puzzle pieces sitting on the table it's, and and you know what the picture is that you need to end with, it's not that hard to put the puzzle together. No, I love the next one. Hey, can you read the next paragraph? It says it starts in his interviews. In his interviews with prosecutors. By the way, I challenge you to get through this uh, this paragraph without laughing out loud. Go ahead. I'll, I'm going to try. Okay. Uh, in okay, here we go. In his interviews with the prosecutors, Mark Hoffman has recited conversations he said he had with President Hinckley, claiming the president asked him to help the church purchase the McClellan collection directly or indirectly. President Hinckley has denied this. I urge but notice something. That's exactly what. Elder Oaks has just described the church as doing, yeah. as buying it indirectly. Go ahead. And by the way, we're going to see this in a little bit, but once Hoffman is captured, arrested, and begins to confess, he tells everything, and he really isn't being dishonest at any point. He tells the story as it is, uh, and you'll see some of this later in some of these things I want to show people. But um, let's see here. So he, he said he had with President Hinckley claiming the president asked him to help the church purchase the McClellan collection directly or indirectly. President Hinckley has denied this. That doesn't mean he's telling the truth. He just denied it. Elder Oaks, again, is telling a fact. No, read the next part because he's going to argue to, that you should believe President Hinckley and not yeah. uh, Hoffman. I, I urge everyone to be thoughtful about whom they will believe in conflicts of this nature. General authorities whose statements about this whole episode have been confirmed by all subsequent investigations or Mark Hoffman, who is renowned for his record of deceit and his efforts to discredit the church and its leaders. Um, once you get that, you know, it's easy to point at the guy who's done something really bad and lots of things bad, to be honest, and say, like, look, do you trust him or me? Like, you shouldn't even have to say it, should you? 
No, you're getting desperate at that point. And especially when he's actually admitting it all around it. Because notice what he says next. In subsequent communications, Hoffman told Elder Pinnock, remember Hugh Pinnock, right? Told Elder Pinnock and Stephen F. Christensen on 28 June 1985, even though they don't keep records of their meetings. Mm -mm, they don't have that. It's just 28 June 1985. He's got a photographic memory. That just occurred to me, by the way. Hoffman told Elder Pinnock and Stephen F. Christensen on 28 June 1985 that he, Hoffman, intended to acquire the McClellan collection in order to give it to the church. Boom. Mm -hmm. And, of course, we know it's with the $185,000 loan that Elder Pinnock facilitated for him. Because he talks about that earlier, remember, in this talk. And then he goes on, as revealed in public statements shortly after the bombings, Hoffman told Elder Pinnock sometime in September that in order to settle debts, he was being forced to sell the McClellan collection and therefore would not be able to give it to the church. Are you stunned yet at how much he's admitting? He's admitting a lot. And I think this next sentence even says more. Go ahead, because now we get to Sorensen. Yeah, Elder Pinnock thereupon brought the purported collection to the attention of David E. Sorensen, president of the church's Canada-Halifax mission. By the way, Hoffman doesn't know Sorensen, at least not until they're introduced through the church, right? Right. Like, like, like Sorensen doesn't get with Hoffman off on the side and say, hey, I'm going to help out with this project. The church is the middleman, and they're trying to keep it off the books. This is happening because the church is making it happen. Elder Pennick thereupon brought the purported collection to the attention of David E. Sorensen. Yes, Elder Pennick. I'm sure. I'm sure he did that on his own, right? Right. The church's Canada Halifax mission to see if he would be interested. The guy, by the way, who only you know ten years later or less is going to be called as a general authority in the church and serve in the highest councils of the church, except for the first presidency and quorum of the twelve. Um, president of the Canada Halifax mission to see if he would be interested in acquiring it as an investment that could possibly be donated to the church at some future time. They didn't go to him and go, Hey, there's this really cool McClellan collection. You should have it. No, they went to him and said, we need somebody to be a middleman. Would you mind purchasing this and then donating it back to us? Nod, nod, wink, wink. We'll get the money back to you somehow. Yes. Or it's a write-off on tithing or any of a number of other things, including future promotions. If you on tithing, what a beautiful way to do it. It's off the books. He just stops paying tithing for a year and he's making millions of dollars a year anyway. Yeah. And now this whole next paragraph, which I'll read quickly, is so funny because oh, here's, here's here's Elder Oaks trying to show that he had nothing to do with David Sorensen and at the same time showing he had everything to do with David Sorensen. Okay. <laughs> David, David E. Sorensen telephoned me. So now he's inculpated himself in this stupid <laughs> thing. Why didn't you just shut up, Elder Oaks? David E. Sorensen telephoned me to find out what I knew about the McClellan collection. I told him I had never seen the collection, but if there was a collection of the papers of this man, it would probably have items of significant historical interest to the church. Mm -hmm. I said that it would be desirable for such a collection to be in the hands of someone friendly to the church. <laughs> no, no favors being asked here. Yeah, not in any kind of like secular museum or something where anybody could have access to them. No. What kind of favor would it do for the church hmm. to have yes. a document and not be on the record as having it so they could hide it away and not show it? Right. <laughs> That's all that they do with these documents, unless they're unimportant. Oh, man. So uh, for such a collection to be in the hands of someone friendly to the church, it would be desirable. <laughs> yeah. Very desirable and delicious to the taste. Yeah, you got it who would consider giving it to the church at some future date, i.e. buy it, give it to us. 
I also told David Sorensen, you see, he can't stop talking about this. I also told David Sorensen that if he wanted to acquire the collection, he would be acting on his own without warranties, financing, or representations of any sort by the church. I further advised him that he had to take the steps necessary to verify that the collection existed, that it was worth the asking price, and that it was not encumbered by some security interest in a third party. I also told him that if he acquired it, it would be entirely up to him whether he would later donate it to the church or resell it. Yeah, no kidding. It's his property. He can actually do with it what he wants. Thanks for letting him know that. But we know why Elder Oaks is saying that, even after saying it would be desirable <laughs> for it to be donated to the church. Um, there was no discussion of access to the collection or publicity of the acquisition, those matters being entirely up to the purchaser. So he spends a big, long paragraph trying to distance himself from David E. Sorensen, while meanwhile totally implicating himself in this whole scheme of getting David Sorensen to buy it and give it to the church. And then finally, he says, can you read this last paragraph? Because once again, we get to the, the, the second check that David Sorensen was going to pay for the McClellan collection. Let me just say here, if you go back up above, you know, um, you, David, David, you would be acting on your own without warranties, financing, or representation of any sort by the church. But, but if you happen to not pay tithing for a couple of years on the <laughs> We'll see to it that you maintain a current temple recommend. Here we go. As and, you, and a second anointing. And a, by the way, you damn well know he got that one. Oh, yeah. His calling and election was made sure the moment that meeting happened. Boom, baby. As you know, David Sorensen engaged. By the way, if you don't know what the second anointing is, Google it. You're going to want to know that if you're a Mormon watching this right now and wondering what the hell we're talking about. As you know, David Sorensen engaged an attorney to handle the acquisition. I'd like to know who the attorney was. Hmm. When Hoffman could not meet the attorney's requirements for verification, the anticipated acquisition was canceled. And so was Stephen Christensen. Yeah. And Sorensen's check for the $185,000 purchase price was never delivered to Hoffman. Yeah. Mm. See, he talks about that as if it's somehow removed from the events of October 15th and 16th from the bombing. But that's right when it happened. Damn. Yeah. All these pieces and parts. If you could have been a fly on the wall, you and I, and specifically you, are really close to the truth here, aren't we? Yes. And this one last thing. Okay. One last thing. Now, this is under something else in his talk. This has to do with his meeting with Mark Hoffman that night or that afternoon. By the uh, way, October 15th. By the way, Mormons value honesty until they don't, right? <laughs> right. Until it's something that can be used against them. Yeah. Uh, let me see here. Where can I get you to? This is where he talks about the meeting that they had. In the same, it's the same thing. As far as I am aware. It's in the same document. Give me, give me any like unique word in that, in that commentary. I wish I could find a unique word. Two words together. Um, uh, Let's see. See, it's got these names of people that are elsewhere in it. Um, can you just look up Elder Hugh Pinnock, P-I-N-N-O-C-K? Okay. And what's the word after Pinnock? Has already explained. Yeah. Done on the screen. Okay. It starts as far as I'm aware. Yeah. As far as I'm aware. Yep. Go ahead. Hoffman met with only two other church leaders. Stephen Christensen brought Hoffman to meet Elder Hugh Pinnock, as Elder Pinnock has already explained in a public statement, and Hoffman met with me for 10 minutes on the 15th of October, 1985, as I have already explained in a public statement. There's somebody missing from that. What? Gordon B. Hinckley, right? 
Yeah, and I think that Gordon B. Hinckley kind of let the middle-level management guys deal with most of it, although he was involved very much, at at least earlier on. I'm not sure how much involved he, with it, he was later on, okay. but I don't know. I don't know. But, um, uh, but yeah, there's the admission. There's the admission to the meeting, which he had already mentioned to law enforcement when he talked to law enforcement. And according to Elder Oaks, the afternoon of the bombings, who's in his office but Mark Hoffman. And Elder Oaks says that they met for about 10 minutes. And Elder Oaks says that Mark Hoffman was there. They talked about the bombings. Mark Hoffman was concerned that law enforcement would want to talk with him about the bombings and because of the bombings, right? And what Mark Hoffman is asking advice from Elder Oaks about is, should I tell them about the McClellan collection? Mm. Because it's top secret. These guys don't want the McClellan collection, though. They don't want anything to do with it. They want someone else to buy it. Right. This is the type of secrecy that's been enjoined on this whole enterprise. Now, according to Elder Oaks, he tells Stephen, uh, Mark Hoffman, he tells Mark Hoffman, look, this is a murder investigation. Now you tell them everything. You tell them everything you know, okay? Because there's a murderer out there. But the first thing I want to say is all of these details of this incredible story of cover-up and conniving and secrecy and deception on its members by the church leaders are admitted in this talk by Elder Oaks. I think inadvertently admitted, but admitted as I think I've demonstrated. Yeah. Now, the last thing is this, is that um, the, um, the issue of discernment has been beaten like a dead horse in this case. And usually there's the picture which you probably have of 1980 Mark Hoffman showing the Antone transcript that he forged to the leaders of the church. Yeah, I'll find out here in just a second. And there's Gordon B. Hinckley, there's uh, Spencer Kimball, there's uh, N. Eldon Tanner, there's Marion G. Romney, and then there's um, there's a young boy, K. Packer, over there standing to the side, looking just a little bit uncomfortable, maybe thinking about little factories instead of Antone manuscripts at the time. Do you have the picture? Yeah, I'm getting ready to put it up right now. There you go. So you got all these guys and... These are the top leaders of the church, except for Boyd K. Packer. He's a junior apostle, but everybody else is the first presidency. Already move over. I'd like to see it. <laughs> Marion, you're in my way. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, but yeah, so the whole idea is this discernment, and I get it. I understand the discernment argument, and I think that there's an argument to be made because one of the gifts of the spirit that leaders of the church claim to have is the power of discernment that they can tell when somebody is lying to them. And it is obvious that Mark Hoffman is right in the middle of telling them a huge whopper and none of them are discerning that fact. Okay. <laughs> oh, they, none of them even look like the Holy ghost is working upon them. They are not, they're not getting it. So then the, the question becomes the, the gift of discernment is a gift that's claimed by mem by leaders of the church, but it's only one of several gifts that they claim. Other gifts that they claim are prophecy, revelation, uh, etc. These well, types of gifts. Didn't, hmm? didn't didn't Elder Oaks claim that he had only that only two leaders had ever met with Mark Hoffman? Did he? Didn't he? Did, wasn't that document we just read where two leaders had met with Hoffman and that was it? I, Elder Oaks. Yeah, I think it was in context of these these other letters, not the Antone manuscript, but that does appear to be. Uh, 
it does look like a few other leaders did meet with with Mark yeah Hall. i guess you're right i guess you're right you should have been an attorney you should have been the attorney <laughs> oh exhibit a right here yeah one two or three meet, meet with them <laughs> i can prove it <laughs> but but okay. but here's the deal here's the deal okay um oh the deal is this is that if we can show, which I think we can show with this picture, that they do not have the gift of discernment, then on what basis should we believe that they have any of the other gifts that they claim to have? Yeah, they if they don't have it here, when do they have it, right? Right. And some people take this argument and say not only could they not tell that this guy was a forger and a liar, but they couldn't even tell that five years down the road he'd be a murderer, right? And they can't tell the document in front of him is not real. No. Nope. Right? Even with the magnifying glass. Even with the help of modern technology. So this document has already been authenticated. This is, of course, a staged picture. But um, uh, the thing is this, is that I'm struck by the fact, I am struck by the fact that uh, talking about them having a power of discernment, like five years down the road, he's going to blow people up, right? Yeah. Um, that seems a bit attenuated, okay? Even for a real prophet, seer, and revelator. What I cannot get over, though, is the fact that the day of October 15th, 1985, this guy, Mark Hoffman, is in Elder Oak's office in the church office building. He's looking him dead in the face. Elder Oaks is looking right in the eyes of a guy who just murdered two people that morning. Yeah. And no bells go off. He doesn't have the spirit of discernment either. <laughs> no, he has really not got it. With this picture and elding, el, adding el, Elder Oaks, we're, we're down to like four out of the top 15, five of the top 15, six of the top 15. Like at this point, there's a significant number of these men who seem to have no access to the spirit of discernment. Oh, Larry Perry saying the consecrated oil guy has more priesthood power than the top 15. <laughs> you know, it's so funny because I know who she's talking about. And I heard his nickname recently. He just got a new nickname. It's called uh, Petroleum Dynamite. Petroleum dynamite. <laughs> oh, I love it. Okay. Yeah. Now, honestly, we're going to end now. We're going to end now. But I want to end with a, a clip from uh, Elder Oaks from General Conference 2004, okay? Because he's going to really put the cherry on top of this. And he's going to tell us how it is that we as members of the church can keep from being deceived. Yeah. Uh, let me get that. Give he me gives a talk in general conference called Be Not Deceived. And this one little clip for about a minute or so. RFM. What? You're not making this up. No, no, no. You're actually going to see him talk and the words will come out of his mouth as his lips move. <laughs> Here we go. Here you go. The Holy Ghost will protect us against being deceived. But to realize that wonderful blessing, we must always do the things necessary to retain that spirit. We must keep the commandments, pray for guidance, and attend church and partake of the sacrament each Sunday. And we must never do anything to drive away that spirit. Specifically, we should avoid pornography, alcohol, tobacco, and drugs and always, always avoid violations of the law of chastity. We must never take things into our bodies or do things with our bodies that drive away the Spirit of the Lord and What's leave the time us stamp on that without our spiritual protection. Just a second here. I will conclude by describing... Oh, that was it. Can you go back to that last part where he concludes it? I'm sorry, I was talking yeah. over it. No, no, give me the timestamp you've got. Oh, let's see here. I think um, I might... 
No, you didn't, because he ends with the word deceived. It's a it's a beautiful conclusion of this paragraph. Um, it is fifteen thirty nine. Okay, here we go. Your subtle form. You already passed it. You already passed it. Fourteen thirty nine is the end. Fourteen thirty nine. Yeah, can you go back to fourteen thirty? Yeah, yeah, no problem. He's already said that we can't do these bad things, otherwise we'll be deceived. Yeah. Never take things into our bodies or do things with our bodies that drive away the Spirit of the Lord and leave us without our spiritual protection against deception. There you go. I will. So I don't know what all five of those gentlemen were doing in that picture in 1980 in the church office building that allowed them to be deceived. But according to Elder Oaks in 2004, it either involved pornography, alcohol, tobacco, or violations of the law of chastity, or any combination of those, I think. Yeah, um, you got to be good. You got to go to church. You got to pay your tithing. You got to be a good kid. You got to be a good guy. You got to be a good gal, good girl. And you get to have the Holy Ghost, and then you got the spirit of discernment, and you can't be deceived. But they got deceived. Can you imagine him giving this talk? I mean, if I'm Elder Oaks, I'm going to stay as far away as I possibly can from any talk called Be Not Deceived for the rest of my life. Right. I'm just going to work on like loyal opposition and talks like that. I'm not absolutely on deception. So I'm done. I've gone hopelessly long, even though I've left about half of what I was going to talk about on the cutting room floor. And it's a good thing. We can visit it later. I understand, Bill Real, that you have some documents related to. Mark Hoffman. Uh, and I'm going to try to pull those up here. Let me uh, let me start here. So let's let me put this up on the screen. And so this is the first one. This uh, folks, the, a lot of these aren't out there. These aren't things you're going to find in Google. You're not going to see them anywhere. I'll run through them really quickly. This is Mark Hoffman's library access card to the New York Public Library. He is doing a project on Jack London. That's going to come in handy here later on as I get to another image. But uh, this is Mark Hoffman's library card. Can you say how you have these to have pictures um, of them? I, I will simply say, I, 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 no. I mean, I don't really know exactly. So um, the owner of Family Pond, one of the owners of Family Pond, is deeply interested in Mormon collectibles. We've had him on. He's my friend, Chris. Um, he's been collecting this stuff for decades, and he's always had a very deep interest in Mark Hoffman and the events that surrounded that for much of the same reason that I think all the rest of us have an interest. And over the years, he's picked up a piece here and a piece there and talking to him over the last couple of days. I don't know that he even knows exactly where each one of these pieces came from, but it now is a significant collection on Mark Hoffman. <clears throat> so New York Public Library, uh, he's doing a project on Jack London. There's the back of the card with Hoffman's signature. Um, this, when Hoffman does his confession and he's explaining how he did the things he did, he's asked which uh, folks within Mormonism he created forgeries around. That's the list, everybody. Though He has created, he's either signed their name, created a document that has to do with them, with each one of these folks, Mormon and Mormon-related autographs that I forged. This is Hoffman's uh, own acknowledgement. This is folks out of Mormonism that Hoffman um, is, is uh, doing forgeries around. Notice about a little more than halfway down the page, I'll move my cursor near it, Jack London. Mm -hmm. So also, by the way, notice this one, Button Gwinnett. That is the uh, one of the signatures, I think, on the Declaration of Independence, if I'm not mistaken, really? that 
deeply difficult to find a signature from outside of the Declaration of Independence. This is the most mm -hmm. valuable signature on the Declaration of Independence. Oh. But this is the list of folks, George Washington, Martha Washington, Mark Twain, Betsy Ross, Paul Revere. And let me also note, we know some of these forgeries. We've They've been discovered. They've been pulled out of the general public and are noted as forgeries. But that's a small number, if I'm not mistaken, and certainly not all of these. There are still forgeries out there that we know exist because this is the list Hoffman's given us, but we don't know where that forgery is at and which document it is. So they are still amongst the general public as a real historical document, by the way. Here's Hoffman's business card. Um, this is just a copy of it. Here is uh, Mark Hoffman's uh, student permanent record. By the way, you'll notice that in English, he's not that great. English 5-6, uh, looks like he got a D. And I think there's one more page of this. Those are his other grades. But he, if you look through the grades, uh, this is Utah State University. He is an A and B student for the most part there. But when you go back to grade school, he is uh, kind of a C and D kid. He's, he's just uh, kind of an average student in terms of his academic uh, academia and his, uh, his student work. <clears throat> there's Hoffman's driver's license. Uh, we have the actual physical copy. This isn't a photographic copy. This is a, a photograph taken of the actual hard copy of his license that we have. Here's his fingerprints when he was uh, arrested. And you'll notice here in the right hand, missing two joints. There is no fingerprint. The bomb blew his finger off. And there are other fingers that it is noticed that it is missing uh, parts and pieces of uh, this one here, here, for instance. I uh, just want to know what he did when somebody cut him off on the freeway. <laughs> <laughs> all right. All right. That's, I don't know if I took that the way you meant it, but that was, that had another meaning and it was felt funny to me. So here is Hoffman's marriage certificate to Dora Lee Olds. Got uh, married in the, uh, looks like the Salt Lake Temple. Here is the Department of Corrections letter regarding Hoffman. By the way, all of you folks, if I'm just going through these too fast and you want to read them, just go back and pause the video after we get finished. And uh, you can then take your time and read all of these documents. I think they're fairly clear on the screen. Um, this was uh, essentially part of the Department of Corrections records with him. But then it gets really interesting. This is the psychological assessment of Mark Hoffman by the state psychologist. And it goes through and it, it shares a ton. You know, this guy's just sitting down and having Mark tell his story and he's making notes of the storyline, but also of anything he picks up that points to any kind of cognitive impairment or um, psychological problem. And so there are a couple interesting things different than what Hoffman said in other places he claims in this particular document to not have intended any harm towards um, um, the Sheets family, that the bomb was not supposed to go off. In the documentary, it, re it relates that maybe there was a 50-50 chance, and it was kind of a game to him. Um, so there is at least some level of deception, maybe, even with the psychologist. Um, it talks about how he uh, his IQ, notes that his IQ was around 130 Four to 137. I want to try to find that here. 
right up here. So intellectual functioning on the Shipley Institute of Living Scale, Mr. Hoffman obtained a vocabulary IQ of 137, an abstraction IQ of 134, and a full-scale IQ of 136. Uh, not not Mensa by, you know, I think Mensa it is like 130 or something to get in, but 137 maybe. So it's not like way up there, but this is a smart guy. Um, that is a, that's a relatively high IQ. And the guy notes here that the IQ ceiling is 140 on this test. So maybe Hoffman's even a little smarter. Um, notes here. It's my opinion that there is no evidence of an organic cerebral dysfunction. They talk about uh, personality traits and things. Essentially, nothing really is deeply a note of warning to the psychologist. There's not really any kind of sign that something is deeply wrong. Hoffman comes off as a relatively normal person. Um, there was a note here at the end. The client shows below average awareness or interest in other people, and the client's degree of self-focus is higher than normal. It may very well involve a more primitive self-centeredness, which can preclude and, and appreciate the welfare of others and their values. Um, diagnost diagnostic formulation, it goes into that, but there's the, the psychological evaluation. United States Department of Justice, here's the documents talking about the actual uh, charges that he received. You mentioned earlier um, a symposium talk and Elder Oaks was supposed to be at that. And in fact, he was. I'm trying to remember where it was on the paper. Do you see it by chance, RFM? Uh, it's very small to me. So I cannot really. But this was the August 16th, 1985 oh, presentation, right? Yeah, right here. Elder Dallin H. Oaks, Council of the Twelve Apostles, the Church of Jesus Christ, Latter-day Saints. This was a symposium after the fact, which was meant to kind of try to explain everything away and kind of restore faith to people who were having doubts. Uh, but Elder Oaks was one of the featured speakers at that, including, by the way, Richard Bushman, Jan Ships, um, looking for other names that I recognize, Leonard Arrington, Ronald Walker, Marvin Hill. Uh, Marvin Hill wrote a, a great book about Joseph Smith that I read early on in my time in the church. There's that. This is the Mark Hoffman interviews. This is volume one and volume two. So this is the official conversations, transcripts, supplements, and exhibits. Notice how thick that book is. And now you've got volume one of Hoffman's confession, volume two, and volume three of Hoffman's confession. Notice how thick those books are. And this is a fun one. This one's been seen before. Uh, my, my buddy Chris uh, procured a... Mark Hoffman forgery. This was sold off as a Mormon seer stone that a, a father, this was actually believed to be an Indian Native American relic that Hoffman took and then gave an entirely new provenance for. And so there's the letter, but I'm going to get to Hoffman's writing. This is Hoffman's writing. It says, stone through which father would see the complexion and gender of all his children, he found it about 1860 near Logan, Utah. And then, so that's Hoffman's writing. And then Hoffman comes in and he adds a couple additional details as if he's changing the facts, which makes it look more credible. When you take something that's false, it's a forgery. And now you just add another fact into part of that document. So you're correcting the year and you're adding the names of the family that were involved. And that adds provenance and created what was believed by the purchaser to be a real early Mormon seer stone. And then this is just the letter 
that talks about that provenance after the fact and is a signed statement explaining where it came from and, uh, and how uh, Hoffman portrayed it. And then this was kind of cool. This is the last one, I think. Maybe I've got a couple pictures afterward. But uh, this is a document that is supposed to be Hoffman's outline. And I believe it's true because I know where this came from. This is actually in a book uh, by, um, I want to say the name right. Is it Mark Ashworth? McGee? No, 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 not, not, not. No, 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 not McGee. Sorry. Mark Ashworth, who's from the documentary, who met, oh, might have yeah, Brent Ashworth. Sorry. So this is Brent Ashworth's biography. Is it Ash Mint? Uh, I don't, I thought it was Ashworth, but maybe it I'll is. Ashworth. And this was a book, a piece, a couple pieces of paper out of his biography that purport to be, purport to be the outline for the 116 pages of the book of Lehi. And so if you look through here, you can see prophecy of what, these are the things that Hoffman made notes of that need to be in the book. And he's, he's portraying it as, Hey, I think I found the 116 pages. These are the important parts I'm seeing, but it also serves as an outline for Hoffman to go, look, I got to make sure this is in there. I got to make sure I include this. This will add a fascinating point. It's not just one page. It's not just two pages. It's three pages long. This was a project that Hoffman uh, intended to fulfill, except he was making money off smaller, easier documents to create. And he even says himself, like, this was, I just got lazy and this was too much work. And so by making money on the smaller documents, I just kept those ones rolling. And that is it. That's the end of the slideshow. So after the fact, you can go back in and watch the video, push pause and uh, look at all of that. But I you, hope you found all of that interesting. It's fascinating. You were right, by the way. It's Brent Ashworth. I was getting him confused in my head with Ed Ashment. Yeah, no, no sweat. So Brent Ashworth, this was out of his biography. Uh, he shares what Hoffman gave him. And they were close friends. You see that from the documentary. They were so close that uh, it was Brent Ashworth who almost ended up being bombing victim yeah. number three. There is a high likelihood that he would have been victim number three in that bomb that goes off in Hoffman's hands. Yeah, on October 16th, 1985. Yeah, yeah. but they've already shared the documents, uh, Oaks and Hinckley and Pinnock. So the bombing really doesn't matter. Nope. <laughs> so there it is. Uh, that's all that I've got, um, RFM. Yeah, there's other stuff we can go over at, an, at another time in a future uh, show if there's any continued interest in it, especially the toad and the early document that mentions the toad uh, and transfiguring itself into a spirit yeah, in relation to these plates. Yeah, I hope we do. I hope we do get to some point talking just about Joseph Smith's treasure digging and what evidence is out there. There's a lot of stuff on the, the Palmyra digs that uh, Dan Vogel's covered. Uh, some of those caverns that still exist today and some of the things that they've found inside of those, by the way, over the years. And so that's one that I hope we get to at some point. Um, folks, I hope you enjoyed tonight. RFM, you are, you're a class act in terms of doing the study, doing the research, putting the data together. You sent me the outline. You and I, I was laughing this morning because I went to push print and you had just a basic outline for me to use that has just the highlights so I know where to take the video to. And then you had your outline, which was like 20 pages long, and it was full of material. Um, you over-prepare, and I don't mean that in a negative, I mean that in a positive. You, are, you take seriously when you present something, and I just want to say thank you because people benefit greatly from that. Um, I hope folks enjoyed the documents at the end. Some of those have never been seen before. Um, this story is just fascinating. Uh, obviously, as, as Netflix is, I think, reaping the reward of putting this thing out, and lots of Mormons and non-Mormons alike seem to be uh, 
thrilled uh, with these with this documentary, this three three part series, and have fallen in love with uh, the story. Been on the edge of their seats as, they, as they've watched it. Can we take a couple of phone calls? I know we're running late, and while we're waiting, I want to tell my favorite St. Patrick's Day joke, if that's okay. No, no, that's perfect. Let me uh, let me x stuff out. I'll start pulling up the call thing, uh, the the Google Voice, and folks, you can start to get ready to call. I won't be able to take the call quite yet, but please start start dialing, and uh, I'll be there in just a second. And you can uh, you can tell a joke and buy me some time. What's that number they're supposed to call, Bill? It's one eight hundred. Oh no, no, sorry, I always do that. It's four three five two hundred fist. That's right? where we're supposed to do that. Yeah, okay. Two hundred fist. And I look forward to that every week doing it. No, no, I'm going to keep doing it too. And it's, or it's 435-200-3478. And now I just need a minute. So if you'll buy me that moment. Okay. So uh, here's my favorite St. Paddy's Day story. There's an Irish guy. He's walking along the beach. Okay. Finds a bottle, rubs it. Genie pops out, says, I'll give you two wishes. Not three, but two wishes. This is a two wish story. Okay. So the Irishman says, well, I tell you what, I'd I'd like a mug, a mug of, a mug of ale. And it's got to be the best ale I've ever tasted. And 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 no matter how much I drink, uh, it's always full. That's my first wish. So the genie goes, okay, got it. Then and this mug appears in the Irishman's hand, and it's full of ale. He drinks some. It's fantastic. He drinks it all the way to the bottom. He watches it. It bubbles up to the top. It's full again. He says, this is amazing. This is wonderful. This is fantastic. And the genie says, yeah, I know. So, okay, what's your second wish? And the Irishman thinks for a second. He goes, well, I think I'll be having another one of these, if you don't mind. Uh, one wish takes care of it, doesn't it? Even though he's already asked for it to stay full. That does sound like an Irishman, doesn't it? Oh, my gosh. Yes. Oh. By the way, part Irish. I'm Irish, so it's okay for me to tell the joke, right? Yeah, and absolutely. And I've got a joke about a genie and wishes, too, and it involves a really, like a really short uh, piano player. Uh, I'll tell that one sometime. But but not tonight. I'll save that one for another day. Uh, it's a little crass. Oh, okay. uh, Mormonism Live's uh, first caller. I didn't catch the name. Would you mind uh, telling us your name and then whatever your thoughts are tonight? Bill Oliphant, is it, am I on? You are on, my friend. Well, Bill and our family love both of you. Okay, there's two uh, facts that you can take as either facts or rumors <clears throat> relative to the Hoffman stuff. One of them is exciting because it's a positive that came out of this terrible negative experience. Apparently, from the crime records, car thefts for about a decade went down to almost zero after the Hoffman incident. And it was attributed to a security firm, a security service that printed a clear sticker that you would put on the driver's side window that said... This car protected by Mark Hoffman's security system. <laughs> That's good. You don't have to believe that if you don't want to. Okay. You don't have to believe this other one either, but apparently one of the chart documents in the trunk of his car, which hasn't been seen since, probably the church snatched it up, was a letter in Joseph Smith's own handwriting to a Mr. Peterson who apparently was a lawyer representing Ethan Smith. And they were renegotiating the royalty payments that Joseph had to pay for a view of the Hebrews. Mm. (laughs) You don't have to believe. 
You don't have to believe that one either, but I thought I'd throw it in there. Well, I appreciate the phone call, my friend. Whether those are true (laughs) or not, we got a good chuckle out of them. I love it. All right. See you, Mike. Have a great night. (laughs) I'm not sure if the caller can hear me, Bill. I hate to sound like a broken record. Like that first night we had the caller hearing you. And then since we haven't been able to pull it off and I don't know what the secret is. If somebody understands how the roadie uh, caster works, the road caster pro works. I I would love to to know how that happens. Jeremy. Jeremy, you are on Mormonism live with radio free Mormon and bill real. What is on your mind? My friend. Good evening. When I, first started learning about uh, church history information and I was coming across stuff that was very difficult to listen to. Uh, I finally heard about Mark Hoffman and that kind of gave me some hope. Like I could pin every issue onto him. Mm. My question for you, do you think there's anything still out there that can be attributed to Mark or might be questionable of whether it's real in the scope of church history. Perfect. I'll hang up with you and we'll, we'll try to answer that. Thank you. You're welcome. So I, I don't think so in Mormonism. Um, I guess, you know, one of the things that got found was the 1826 glass looking trial paper, but that seems to have been located where it was supposed to be in the binder. It was supposed to be in of an old historical artifact. I think it would have been really difficult for Mark to have planted that, but that's the only thing that really comes to mind easily. I, I don't know. Arfim, do you think there's anything else that could, uh, could possibly be out there Um, outside the LDS church? Yeah, I think definitely they still exist and they don't know where they are inside the LDS church. I think they've done a pretty good job of trying to flush the system of all of these things because it's much more limited in their acquisitions and they know what they got from Mark Hoffman. It doesn't completely take care of the problem, but I think they've, They've gotten rid of most of it. Yeah. And, but as we pointed out in the secular world, there are still documents out there that are being uh, handed back and forth or kept in, in um, museums or other places of records where they are still thought of to be authentic and real. Yeah. Uh, you are, you're on Mormonism live with uh, Bill real and radio free Mormon. Uh, what's on your mind? Hey, uh, so I watched the documentary last week with my family. They're all believers. And afterwards they said, I am so glad that that came out as a forgery because that would have just really proved the church was wrong in every way. And I was really surprised because I thought, I feel like there's stuff that is much more damning that is out there and verified and admitted on the website. And I was really confused by that and confused by how are they rationalizing it or is it that bad in my mind? Because I feel like it's not that big a deal compared to some of the other folk magic stuff out there. So I want to get your thoughts on that. Mm, Thank you. Yeah. Appreciate it. RFM thoughts. Oh yeah, absolutely. This was never, ever the big thing. It was a big thing at the time, but it only was accepted within the church and paid for by the church and its surrogates because it was believable because it fit into the already established folk magic context and money digging context of what they already knew Joseph Smith was involved in in younger years, especially his younger years. So uh, that's why they were accepted. So you take the forgeries out, the forgeries actually really just sort of opened the doorway for the legitimate stuff to come forward, which has now been accepted and pretty much acknowledged by the LDS church on its, uh, 
on its own webpage on the essay about the uh, Book of Mormon translation, I think. Yeah, no, absolutely. You are on the air, caller. You'll, uh, I don't know how many more we'll take, but I think we're probably nearing the end. Uh, what's on your mind tonight? Share your name too, by the way. Hi. It doesn't matter if it's a pseudonym or not. Oh, sure. Aaron, um, I just, I really like the idea of um, connecting this idea of the toad in the box. I've been, I started reading Dan Vogel's The Making of Profit, and that it wasn't so, it wasn't a stretch for him to see a salamander with that in mind. And I just, I'm hoping that you'll develop that a little bit because it always seemed like as a youth, I went from the angel Moroni to a salamander. That's a big step. But from a toad to a salamander, right. seemed like the church thought that was plausible. But thank you for all your work. I'll get off. Thank yeah, you. Thank you. Yeah, and we, I will I will develop that in a future episode. Absolutely, I promise you. But you're right. The jump from a, salam a toad to a salamander, that's like this, because we can all understand that. But from a salamander to an angel is like, it's just, it's over there. It's down the block from here. Yeah, and it should be noted, once you understand Joseph Smith's treasure digging and all the occultic practices that revolved around that, slitting animal throats, drawing magic circles, having guardian spirits, treasure sinking further into the earth, using seer stones, um, animals and and their role as either being kind of a um, a disguise of a guardian spirit um, is, is throughout all of this mythical folklore around uh, not just treasure digging, but just these occultic practices that were common of that day as well. All right. You are, you're on the air Mormonism live. Uh, what's your thoughts? Hi, I think I am possibly your first international caller. Oh, I, love so I it. just wanted to say thank you for a great episode. Perfect. Um, I really enjoyed almost everything about tonight but as an international caller I just have to call out RFM for the Irish accent RFM you're up against Bill who is doing the most amazing Boykey Packer um, accent so I, you know you're supposed to have a drama background sir let's raise the game here <laughs> I love it what's your name caller it's Jane and I'm calling from Scotland I love it I love it. Straight from Scotland. Have a great night. Yeah, guys. thank you. Thank you so much. I felt like I was being insulted, but I couldn't even understand what was being said. I, I feel like I missed out. Yeah. Well, could you understand that better? Bill? I'm sorry, because she's from Scotland, right? Love most of the show, but the Irish accent, uh, maybe maybe in a humorous way, got under her skin just a little bit, but you did a beautiful Boyd K. Packer accent, which she had no problem with at all. Well, okay, that's great. You know, I've got an, uh, Scottish, a Scot Scottish guy joke, too, because this is what my dad would say. He would talk about the Grand Canyon. say, you know how the Grand Canyon got formed, right? And of course, we we're little kids. We've heard it a hundred times. No, Dad, how? He said, Scotsman, uh, dropped a dime. <laughs> uh, just or, or he lost a dime or something like that. The idea, of course, you understand. Yeah, he, he went looking for it, huh? <laughs> but I'm so happy that we've got people in Scotland. Scootin' watching the show. Nope, I went from, uh, I think went Cockney on me. Sorry about that. But thank you so much. I think it's wonderful that you're watching the show and I'll try and up my game as far as their dramatic uh, aspect in some way. Cool. Thank you. George Washington Hey Duke donated 50 bucks to Mormonism Live. Thank you, George Washington Hey Duke. Thank uh, you. Those donations. Somebody said earlier that I can register 
uh, Mormon Discussion Incorporated as a 501c3 on YouTube. And then we'll get 100% of the donations RFM. So that's what I'm going to do tomorrow morning is try to get us a little bit more cold, hard cash. Ben, you know, it must be almost 3 o'clock in the morning in, in Scotland. Scotland. Yeah, that's how entertaining we are. That and is huge. So stay up late. To that's watch commitment. Live. Yeah, you tell me about it, brother. <laughs> we'll take one more phone call if, if it comes in the next, say, 30 seconds. Otherwise, we'll call it a night. Thank you, George Washington. Yeah, George Washington, thank you very, very much. Let's see if there's another ethnicity I can insult while we're waiting. Oh, there we go. There we go. Yeah, here we are. I'm part scotch, too, by the way. You are on the air, Mormonism Live. You are the final phone call of the night, so make it good, my friend. Uh, state your name, and what are your thoughts? <laughs> make it good. That's too much pressure. I know, right? Um, <laughs> how do you think we feel every so week? Sorry, what? <laughs> said, how do you think we feel every week? <laughs> <laughs> uh, so this is Marty. Um, yeah, I, get, I like watching you guys. You guys get $10 a month from me because I'm cheap, but... You know, I really like your guys' stuff. Like you were saying, when uh, before you were taking calls, it's sometimes it's hard to get through all of the stuff. It's really time-consuming. So I just really appreciate you guys going through it and then sharing what you found. So and I also love. I don't know. You try to be as objective as possible, however objective you can be when you're not a believer. But I I feel it. It feels good. So appreciate it. Yeah, well, thank you. Do have a. Yeah, I do have a question. Um, so have you ever considered doing like an episode where you put your believer hat back on and put put your best apologetic, I don't know, your best apologetic um, arguments forward? Like, I don't know. But, you know, I'm trying to, it's a nuanced argument yeah. that people hold on to. You know what I mean? Yeah, absolutely. So RFM and I have talked off the air several times about doing an episode at some point where he uh, it acts as the apologist, which he's done before. He's gone on to mm -hmm. uh, Mormon Expression and other places where you acted as the apologist because the apologist wouldn't go on and you gave the faithful side of the argument, RFM. And we've talked about doing that where I'm the critic, he's the apologist, and we go at it for a little while. Um, I think it'd be a ball of fun. And I'm sure at some point here in Mormonism Live, we're going to get to that. That'd be awesome. That'd cool. Be cool. Awesome. Anyway, well, thank you for the call. Love it. Thank yeah. you. Have a nice night. Yeah, Bye. you too. Bye-bye. Thanks, Marty. So um, just a, a quick note. Uh, so Janie told us there from Scotland that it's 2 a.m. there. And she says, we are hardcore in Scotland. So they, they are. And thank you so much for watching. And I hope I didn't offend anybody in Scotland or in Ireland no. or in any of the other aisles of the sea. I think there were a lot of other kinds of people that might have been offended. And none of them were the folks who were enjoying the show. Good. Because I'm Irish. I'm Scotch. I got it all. Yeah. I think it's those guys who lack discernment who might have been a little bothered. <laughs> yes. Well, RFM, there's another episode in the books. Great job, my friend. Folks, tune in next week. In the meantime, the audio should come out tomorrow morning. You can visit the website, mormonismlive.org. Uh, you can also find us on Facebook. We have uh, our own Facebook group there. We're up to about 450 uh, folks in that group, RFM. It is growing. Every day, there's about three or four, five, six, seven people who want to be part of that. And so that group is growing. You can be there in that group and participate. Uh, create your own post, comment on other folks' uh, commentary and posts there. 
we also have a YouTube channel where you can see all these as well. Uh, and again, your donation does make this possible. I'll, I'll be honest. We both come in every Wednesday night at 6.20 p.m. We give a couple of hours. You and I are accustomed to picking when we record, picking when we do topics. Uh, this is a little different. It requires a little more planning and a little more canceling out things in our schedule. Uh, but we do it because we, we think this is important. And folks, I, I don't mean to harp on it, but you show us that you think this is important by donating at mormonismlive.org. Click the donate button. Uh, anything left to RFM you want to tackle before we uh, let uh, let the listeners go and, and get back to doing our thing? No, I just wanted to say that, uh, yeah, we do come in, and I think it goes without saying, which doesn't mean I won't say it anyway, yeah. which is that, like, for this show, um, good grief, how much research did I do just for this show, including watching the the Netflix series, which I probably would have done anyway, which is three hours. Uh probably 10, 12 hours on top of that yeah. uh, is not uh, incredible uh, as far as how much time I put in as far as an estimate. So yeah. I'd say, yeah, 12 hours to 15 hours preparation time for the show, yeah. uh, just for the show in the past week or two. Yeah. So yeah, we, I, I do try and work hard. I do try and bring my best game to the show. It does require preparation. I'm happy to do it. And uh, I hope everybody uh, appreciates it. And uh I think that's all I have to say because I'm starting to, to no, no. that's that perfect. Uh, one little last little thing, just again, our endorsement from a previous general authority. Mormonism live better than touching your own little factory. Good night, folks. Have a great evening and uh, appreciate all of you joining with us.